You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole coming at you from Rick's in Casablanca. That's right. We've hopped over the pond and are enjoying a a wonderful drink here in this fine establishment. And I'm so excited to have back with me the one and only Zachary Fruling. Zachary, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. You know, the 602 Club is kind of like Rick's. Everybody comes to the 602 Club. It's true. It's true. You know, it's funny because on Warp 5, Chris and I were just recording the episode on First Flight. It's one of the biggest episodes, of course, where uh, we really see the 602 Club. We get a chance to really hang out in it a bunch. And uh, so absolutely. No, I mean, that's the place where all the Starfleet brats would go uh, and and brass uh, as they... And you get off shift and go hang out. So absolutely, 100%. And uh, I, I love it that we're here tonight. And it's really fun because uh, this is, this is for me, a very special movie. And so uh, when Zachary and I were trying to think of things that we wanted to discuss, uh, well, uh, I have a birthday coming up. And I thought, well, why don't I talk about a movie that really means a lot to me? And uh, so we're going to do that tonight. But... Before we do that, before we dive into the best gin joint in all the world, uh, you can find us all over the place on social media. We would appreciate if you would interact with us and follow us on those places. Twitter, of course, at the 602 Club. We're on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. There's that new threads thing you can find us at as well, 602 Club TFM. You can find the entire network, trek.fm. Of course, we've got Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, the entire network there. Babel Conference, you can join over on Facebook and talk to listeners from all over the world. And you've got our website, track.fm, where you can see all of the shows we're doing. And if you do like what we do here, we would really appreciate it if you would help us out by going over to Patreon at patreon.com slash trek.fm and become part of our team. Make sure that all of these shows can keep coming to you each and every week. You know, it's very expensive to do this, and we can't do it without listeners just like you. So, again, that is patreon.com slash trekfm. Plus, you know, we always tell you this, but if you're not subscribed to the show wherever you're listening, please subscribe to the show, and you'll be able to listen to all the episodes as soon as they drop. Uh, And you can help us out by, you know, giving us a shout out, star rating, review on a place like, you know, Apple Podcasts or Spotify and those kind of things. All of that said, I'm really interested, uh, Zach, to hear what your history with this movie is, because, of course, you know, this is a film uh, that was released in 1942, and so it has been around for a very long time. And so is this something you grew up with? Is this your first time? I'm really interested to to see where, what meeting of the minds we have here, because uh, I think we come at this movie from such different angles. You told me previously that this is your favorite movie. Am I right about that? And, and we're 
talking about it because it's your birthday tomorrow mm-hmm. and it's your yeah. favorite movie. So this is a birthday present to you. Happy birthday, by the way. Thank uh, you. In contrast, I have never seen Casablanca until the day before yesterday, <laughs> ever. So I have no attachment to this movie whatsoever. And um, I'd like to think I bring some fresh eyes to it. And uh, I was looking through the show notes that you put together. And I, I think you and I take away some some slightly different things from this movie. So I'm looking forward to doing a little compare and contrast and see what we come up with. Yeah, I think that's going to be really fun. Um, like you said, this has definitely been... Uh, my favorite movie for the longest time, um, you know, just as uh, I was growing up and kind of uh, getting a cinema education, uh, this not only became my favorite movie, but I would argue to me uh, is probably the best movie ever made, uh, is my opinion. Uh, there's just so much about this movie that I think not only works and clicks, but has become just so iconic uh, and so longing to be copied by other people uh and you know it became one of those benchmark films uh in the ways in which uh writing character development all of that kind of stuff you would you would see copied in later films and and other films try to i think mimic it um another film that I, i always think of you know that's really old that's like that is it happened one night with clark gable um, which is kind of the quintessential romantic comedy. Uh, and so many films have kind of followed the same type of formula that it created uh, and to, you know, create films ad nauseum in that genre. And you would see many of those types of things copied in many films or at least paid homage to. And I think, you know, that's one of the interesting things about Casablanca is it's definitely become that I mean, with, with a film this old. It's also one of those movies that other movies will talk about or reference. I mean, I think there's a movie called Play It Again, Sam. Isn't that right? That takes, that, that is about someone who is a fan of Casablanca. And, I, you know, I remember um, when Harry met Sally, uh, spent some yes. time talking yep. about Casablanca. That was my, my sole introduction yep. to Casablanca until recently. Yeah. No, 100%. You know, I, I think um, that's uh, one of the places, too, that I remember seeing it heavily referenced, you know, as they're watching it, uh, as they're falling asleep at night, you know, talking on the phone and they're repeating the lines of the film to each other because, again, it's such a classic film. And so I, I they also I was, talk about whether it's better for uh, uh, is it Ilsa, I think, to to stay with Rick yes, or, to, or exactly. to get on the plane at the end of the movie. Right? Exactly. You know, they have the whole conversation about that. Absolutely. Uh, you know, so it, it's, it's what you a, want out of life. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, for your movie to still be argued about, you know, that long after it's been made is is pretty impressive um and it's a, it's a test are you a romantic or are you a cynic right <laughs> exactly exactly um or are are you something else which i think that you know there's there's something uh kind of in between their take so uh, that we'll talk about later but you know uh, it's interesting to me too because the, this movie's history is so fascinating um this was a film that was based on an unproduced play called Everybody Comes to Rick's. And at the time, it was the most that anybody had paid for an unproduced film of $20,000. But on top of that, I mean, this is a movie that, you know, we're in the Hollywood system, right? We're in the studio system. Um, And this was just another film in the end. It wasn't, it went through a bunch of writers, you know, and this was not meant to be necessarily, I think, anything special. 
right? Um, which it, it's it doesn't feel like a special movie, actually. You know, as I watch the movie, I mean, it, it's a classic movie now in retrospect, but I didn't get the sense in watching the movie that it was produced as a classic. Uh, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think in many ways this is a film that is produced just the way that all the other Hollywood studio films at that point are being produced. Uh, you know, it you do have an A-list cast in this film, uh, which I think helps. You know, a lot of the cast of this film is also in the Maltese Falcon, which was an incredible film as well. Uh, in fact, much of this cast is 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 in the Maltese Falcon, so it's it, it's an incredible like uh, double bill if you're ever interested to to kind of get that um, perspective. But no, I think you're absolutely right. There, nobody's making this movie thinking we're making a classic. You know, um, it's being put through the meat grinder of the studio system, just like every other film really is at that point, and so. I, I wanted to ask you, because of your perspective coming into this, why do you think this movie has found an audience this many years later where people are still talking about this movie? This, it's still on the best of lists, uh, you know, uh, Hollywood's top 100 list. It, it's it's very far up there. You know, it, wh what is it? Why Why are we still talking about Casablanca? You know, to, to some extent, I think it has to do with the fact that the characters are, to some extent, caricatures. <laughs> Rick is extremely cynical, and the Nazis are extremely Nazis. <laughs> it's just, it's it's a very, I don't know, it's it's not a subtle film. It it it, it plays the stereotypes really well. And also, I, this is something I didn't realize until I watched the film, but I didn't realize how many famous lines that I already knew actually came from Casablanca. I guess I knew that, but I never really thought about it. Uh, it's just quotable. Play it again, Sam. And here's looking at you, kid. And I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And we'll always have Paris. And boy, these lines just stick with you. And uh, it, it may boil down to that, really, for me. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting thing because I, I think that it lasts. And and you know, you mentioned the fact that these feel like characters, but I, I think one of the things that I always have to remember when. I'm watching a film of, of this generation mm -hmm. uh, is that we don't have all the film history then that we have now. Mm -hmm. And so for many people, this type of film is revolutionary, um, especially back then, because, you know, this is a movie that deals with some, I would say, um, you know, moral ambiguity in a way that most films don't play with in that time period. So I think that's one of the things that sets this film apart. Um, and you mentioned the, the the classic lines. You know, I think that the reason we continue to talk about it is because of the way these actors deliver these lines makes them iconic. Um, you know, I, we often forget, I think, these days uh, the star power of a movie star which, you know, Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman were absolutely at that time. Um, and so uh, their ability to, like, carry things. Um, and I, I think I, my wife was asking me about this last night. And I think what makes it last and makes it iconic is that almost every single scene 
has one of those lines that you're talking about. It mm-hmm. it, it has um, shots that people are, have tried to mimic for years. It has a setup uh, and storytelling that people have tried to create uh, again and again over and over because they feel like this is so well done. And, you know, uh, they they say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? And I I think that's one of the things about this film is it lasts because it's one that people have tried to imitate for so long. And therefore, that's the other thing that's kind of helped it live in our, you know, collective consciousness. Well, I think you hit on something that the play, that the movie plays like a play. It you know, it's designed to elicit audience reaction, scene by scene, line by line, just like you would in a in a stage production. Which, I mean, it's one of those things where people kind of forget how limited filmmaking was at the time. And so most films of that time period are very much living up to their name that they had earned the talkies, right? All of all of these old films are based on dialogue, not intense action, right? Which are still fairly new. I mean, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, within 20 years or so. Yes, exactly. Uh, and so, no, I think you've set – I mean, you've hit on that very well. Uh, and so and, – and I think one of the other things to me that I was – as I was re-watching the film the other night and I was just kind of playing through things in my head – you know, I think one of the things that this film does very well is within the first five minutes of the movie, setting up the world of Casablanca from the very start and introducing us to the characters, the way they weave all these storylines together. I was actually, again, impressed as I was kind of like looking at the film pretty intently the way that that happens. I mean, even all these tiny little side characters in that introduction, you know, as, as the narrator is telling us about why all these people are here in Casablanca, you know, you're already seeing characters that you're going to see the rest of the film. And it's slowly going to bring you into their stories as everything here just kind of interweaves itself together. It's such a creature of its time. I mean, the, the 20th century in general was a, a century of this duality of civility and barbarism, right? <laughs> Think of all the progress that was happening, how civil things could be in the 20th century, but we had two world wars in Vietnam and things were really, really chaotic. And this movie seems to tap into the, the zeitgeist of the time. I think uh, the world is completely out of control. And yet uh, we live in the civilized part of the world. And French Morocco seemed to have the uh, that that duality of, you know, a civilized environment inside the bar, but extreme barbarism right outside the doors, mm-hmm. sometimes in the doors. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, something that we'll talk about, but some of the thematic elements that kind of come up in the film uh, that it's asking you know different questions in the midst of a time where people are asking their own big questions i mean this movie's made and 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 uh released in in 1942 at hollywood theater there and the wide releases in in 1943 so i mean people are you know reeling like you said with uh the being in the middle of world war 2 and 
I, I think well, this movie... Well, it, it's a situation of being out of control, right? I mean, the, right, the world exactly. is at war, and if you're not literally, you know, a person with a rifle on your shoulders, think how out of control you really are. You don't have the ability to influence right. world events. Um, you're kind of waiting for your fate to be handed to you. And I think the thing that I found most interesting in the in the way that Ricks is portrayed is that it's a, it's a waiting place. Like, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. No one knows what the outcome is going to be. There's... Uh, uh, you know, is, are the Nazis going to be victorious? Are the Americans going to be victorious? Can we get to America? Can we not get to America? We're going to be stuck yep. in Casablanca yes. forever. And what do you do? You wait at Rick's and try to find some meaning in the middle of it all. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think, you know, you hitting on that. I mean, the whole beginning of the film is the narration and then it ends with and wait and wait <laughs> and wait because, yeah, everybody is there just waiting to get out of this place, but they don't know if that's ever going to happen. And therefore, you end up with the most interesting collection of people uh, on screen and, you know, in the story because all of these people have been thrown together by the complete and utter destruction of their normal lives because of what's happening in Europe at the time. Even their uh, riches and wealth and influence don't seem to get them out of Casablanca. Exactly. I think that. It's just, it, you know, when, when we think about the, the way the film sets itself up, one just as a quick example uh, for anyone kind of listening, I think one of the things like the story of the couple, the young couple who are trying to get out of Casablanca and you see them very early in that opening uh, with the narration and then they slowly kind of progress out of the background of the story into the story. And then they become very much involved with all of our main characters from Rick to uh, Captain Reynolds, uh, you know, and it's it's actually that action that Rick takes there that kind of helps us see a little bit into in, you know, into the soul of that character. Right. Who? Yeah, it's either central to his character growth or it's central to the revelation of what his character really is. Exactly. Exactly. So the the film setup, though, I think is just so incredibly smart in the way that it is interweaving all these characters. Because, two, the setup of this really, in in many ways, it's it's almost anthology, right? It's almost anthology-like, right? Because all of these stories are loosely connected and yet very different from one another, but they all have a central focus of, of course, what the film was called uh, originally as an unproduced play, Everybody Comes to Rick's. And it all revolves around this place where, you know, none of these people have anything in common other than the fact that they want to get the heck out of Dodge. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like being in uh, Billy Joel's The Piano Man or something. All the interesting yes! cast of characters that, walk, that you know, wind their way, wind up in this bar somehow. Yeah, no, that's such a great point. I love that. <laughs> Billy Joel's Piano Man. Um, so, no, I, I think it, it that, which I also think is one of the things that, you know, as we were asking the question of what makes this enduring, I think that the film setup is, is, I think that the film setup is actually one of the things that helps in that. Because as you have the ability to rewatch the film over and over again, you're able to focus on all these little side stories as much as you might the main stories that are going on uh, and see how they all play out. It, it, it kind of reminds me of 
the way in which uh, Quarks becomes Rick's on Deep Space Nine. Absolutely. And, I was thinking of that. Even the way that, that Quark says, welcome Klingons. Remember when he yes. un- unfolds the banner, welcome Klingons, yes. he's going to go where the winds blow. That is Rick, right? It's, yep. the, it's the same situation. Exactly. Uh, well, and, and it's exactly what uh, Captain Reynolds says too, right? Mm-hmm. I have no convictions. I go where the wind blows. And uh, Quark is very much that character. So, I mean, even in Star Trek, we see this being referenced. And so I, I think, you know, it is it is something to which that's why this film continues to captivate people and why I think people continue to watch it. Um, but nonetheless, I didn't find it a very inspiring film, to be honest. I mean, it has this latent nihilism throughout it. I mean, the events of the world are completely indifferent to the <laughs> to the fates of these characters in the film. They seem completely out of control. Uh, the characters seem to largely lack a moral compass, seeming willing to go where the winds blow. But of course, by the end, we see a little uh, deeper into Rick, but the nihilism of the, of the film doesn't really get resolved by the end of the film. I, I, so I just didn't yeah. find it a very inspiring film. That's really interesting because I would completely disagree with you uh, because I think that this movie is all about the redemption of Rick. Um, I think this film is clearly showing that, you know, he's lost a sense of anything, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Other than surviving. Uh, that's that's his MO. And he's become that person who... Uh, not willing to fight for anything other than himself. Like you said, he's completely cynical and jaded. Uh, and that's a juxtaposition who we were told he was before, you know, he had his experience with Elsa. Right. But I didn't uh, get the sense that he he was particularly less jaded by the end of the film. Yes, he, he does a couple of good actions and he pairs up with Louie and they're ready to, <laughs> to see what they can get away with by the end of the movie. Well, but I but I see that's where I again, I would disagree with you because um, he is willing to sacrifice the love of his life mm-hmm. for what's better. And he knows that Victor Laszlo escaping is going to be better for the world at large than if he escapes with Elsa. And by doing that, he is giving a, the world a better chance to be able to defeat the the enemy that we've seen throughout the entire film. Um, and, you know, I mean, even the movie itself juxtaposes, you know, the the German national anthem with mm-hmm. this film is laced with the French national anthem all the time. Uh, and that was clearly done to, I think, kind of drive that point home. And I, and I also think, you know, Renault is in a very similar place as Rick where he's become somebody who's I, – and I, I think this is more. He's become somebody who pretends that he doesn't have any convictions and he'll go mm-hmm. where the wind blows. But the moment his friend – is willing to do the right thing. He's willing to follow. And that's where I think that this movie makes Rick the, I mean, it does make Rick the hero um, by being willing to let go of what he personally wants for what's better for everyone involved, not just him. I, I sound like such a cynic in saying this, but I feel like, you know, in, in some sense, I feel like Rick kind of did the bare minimum. He just sends Lazo on the plane on his way and he doesn't really have to get very involved. Well, but I mean, I think, you know, um, he is blessed by the fact that 
Renault also makes the turn, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're we're speaking of this uh, because we know how it ends. But in the story, Rick thinks he's going to be arrested by Renault and put mm-hmm. in prison and or killed, right? So when he's doing this, he's doing this without the knowledge that that turn is going to happen for Renault. And it's only because Renault says, round up the usual suspects, that they are both able to then get away. And they have, as they're walking away, you know, Renault's like, I know a, a free French garrison, you know, and, and, and it, it, they're both willing to get back into the fight, um, which I think, to me, is very clearly the message of the film, especially, you know, at that time period, right, is that this movie would have been saying to everybody, hey, it's worth giving up those things that you need to give up wherever you are to make it better for us to be able to win this war. Um, And that these people do actually have uh, some control of the way things turn out. That one decision could actually turn the tide of the war. Right. Um, And that so and I think that's where to me, that's where the film leaves us is that by letting Laszlo go, we've already seen the way that he's able to inspire people very quickly um, to be the best best versions of themselves. Uh, And I I think that the film does leave us in a place where it's saying, yeah, Rick not only made the right decision, but he's also been inspired to be the better version of, of himself. Uh, that he hasn't been in too long. Uh, it's and almost like, I don't know, kind of like a Rocky moment. Like, you know, get up, you know, you might seem helpless, but get up and keep on fighting. Yeah. Yes. No, I, I, I think that's that's a great point, you know. Um, and But it, I, I think what this is, is that, you know, he had been knocked down and he had been knocked down for quite a long time. I mean, it's years, right? Um. Uh, that I mean, because, you know, I think they leave uh, in the film, of course, you know, they leave Paris once it's occupied, which is very early in the war. And um, here uh, I, I think the film um, December 1941, you know, so it's been a couple mm-hmm. of years where he's really become this kind of cynical, jaded character. Uh, and yeah it's just interesting to hear you say that because it's it's i'm surprised um because to me uh i I feel like the movie is the very antithesis of what you're saying well maybe it's just because it focuses on such specific characters like you know you kind of i I guess i i was hungry for some sort of bigger resolution to the war of course we know the war ends and we know the outcome and whatnot but they didn't when the film was made (laughs) there is no resolution yet we know what the outcome is and obviously it's not going to be in the film because the war was ongoing when the when the film was made so there is no resolution i think i was just hungry for some some resolution to the bigger Mm -hmm. issues in the film yeah well and i I think that's the thing because uh, you know this film is full of moral dilemmas right and I think one of the the biggest moral dilemma that gets asked, it gets asked by the young couple's uh, wife. Uh, and basically, it's the same thing that Ilsa and Rick are struggling with, right? Which is, is it okay to do the wrong thing for the right reasons? And, or should you just do the right thing for the right reasons? Or, you know, like... It, there's... Yeah, I think people's people's temperaments for towards such things vary greatly. There are there are ends justifies the means kind of people, <laughs> and there are uh, do no do no wrong at any cost kind of people. Right, exactly. I mm-hmm. mean, w- you know, because 
you've got this young couple and she's willing to sleep with Captain Renault secretly. Yeah, Richard Nixon wasn't that bad, by the way, while yeah. we're at it, right? <laughs> um, to, to, you know, get away. Uh, and, you know, it's, again, you, you know, we see Rick. We, we see a part of his character there where he keeps her from having to make this terrible choice mm-hmm. by making sure that, you know, he wins the money. Uh, and, you know, they're able to to be able to get away. Um, but I mean, the, the whole question of even what Rick does for Laszlo in the end by lying to him and and telling him, you know, she came and, you know, I let her pretend, you know, she pretended mm-hmm. and I let her pretend, you know, um, it. it it's one of those questions, which I think is one of the biggest questions, too. Is it OK to tell a, a white lie if it leads to something better? Right. Um, and, you know, that kind of moral ambiguity in a film is not something that we'd seen a lot of at that time period, which is one of the reasons I think that that makes this movie something that to which people watching today can kind of connect with because it's not cut and dry right it's not really black and white what we're playing with here we're playing in all sorts of shades of gray i mean matt are you saying that you know prior to to this film we see very very few instances of uh, i mean you basically said it shades of gray characters but um you know uh characters that are not uh as praiseworthy as you might might expect from a from a from a major uh, hollywood picture i mean you know our at prior to this were characters in films you know more about the history film than i do were, were characters more um idealized to some extent mm-hmm. well i mean it's so like this film itself kind of ran into uh the production code administration um you know hollywood's uh self-centering body Mm-hmm. And they didn't like the idea that Captain Renault would be extorting sexual favors, you know, for visa applications. Uh, they didn't like the implication that Rick and Ilsa had slept together in the movie. It strikes me as pretty racy for a 1940s exactly. film. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they even altered some of the lines where they, you know, explicitly talk about Rick and Ilsa's sexual relationship um, and implied kind of uh, implicitly in the film rather than explicitly that you know when she comes up to meet him in his room there at, at Rick's that you know they have sex um, well, it's, like, that, it's like it's like early rock and roll lyrics right I mean all, all the interesting stuff is written between the lines not not explicitly <laughs> exactly which you know in some ways I think makes the film better but um, just because that kind of subtlety is I think it, uh, more enjoyable to be able to then kind of read between the lines right Uh, instead of just having everything explicitly put before you and i think they do a great job of doing that but now i mean this is definitely a movie that kind of was a challenge to the time um again because of the the things that these characters are doing and I, i do think it's because we're you know uh in, in a world full of gray, and no, I don't just mean the black and white that the film is, is produced in, um, it's it's the characters themselves. But I also think it speaks to, um, you know, where people were in the middle of World War II, right? You know, when you think about and you watch or read about what 
um, you know, the men on the front lines of World War II needed to do, right? It's it's not always pretty. It's ugly, as war always is. And there were lots of places, um, you know, that people were having to make moral compromises in ways they wouldn't want it, wouldn't have wanted to. Um, you know, heck, I mean, this this of course they didn't know this was coming, and I'm I'm only thinking about this because. Uh, this year we're going to have Oppenheimer come out, right? Which is going mm-hmm. to be a film which talks about the biggest moral dilemma of World War II, the creation of the atomic bomb and using it. And so I, I think that this movie sets the stage for the type of questions that not only were being asked, but would continue to be asked not only during this war, but as we move forward, which is another reason I think, again, it's, it's something that people can still watch and be like, oh, this this still seems to have relevance, right? Well, the film seems to do a good job of just portraying the fact that people will go to extreme lengths in times of hardship. And, you know, we'd all like to think we'd take the moral high ground <laughs> in times of hardship. But in reality, if any of us were put in an equally uh, uh, hopeless situation, you know, we'd... Uh, We'd probably fall right in line with uh, with compromising our ideals to some extent too. We're as flawed as anyone, so um, just shows the raw humanity of people uh, in hard times. Which uh, I think is definitely a huge moral dilemma in the film. You know, what will you do to survive, mm-hmm. and what what can you live with? You know, again, it it's funny. It reminds me of, of uh, you know. Star Trek Deep Space Nine, you know, where Cisco says, yeah, I I can live with it. I can live with it, you know. I think we talked about this a little bit last time when we were talking about Braveheart, that there are kind of uh, two worldviews you might have about humans' natural state. One is that, you know, humans are generally genteel and get along and social and that's our natural state. Or it's a war of everyone against everyone. And when society degrades, you know, which which path do we choose? Do we, we fall back into some uh, agrarian, uh, utopian kind of state of nature? Or do we fall into a kind of a Thomas Hobbesian uh, war of everyone against everyone, uh, you know, uh, fear-based state of nature? Uh, to me, it seems like Casablanca seems if, – if Braveheart assumed the former, <laughs> that we have these innate natural rights and, and whatnot, I think this, mo- this movie probably assumes the latter, that, that left to uh, our own devices, humans will, will degrade into a, a war of everyone against everyone. I, I think that uh, you're – I think you're hitting on half of it. I think that to me that it not only says that, but that – the natural inclination is to do what we see Rick and Renault doing, which is basically become cynical, jaded, and just go with the wind. <laughs> Whereas the thing that humans can do, which they don't always do, is Very actually choose do, yeah. the the better angels of our nature, right? Uh, to to and in many ways to choose against our nature, which is to uh, do the hard thing, which is the right thing. Uh, regardless of the cost, which is exactly why I think that Rick in the film, in his moral dilemma, comes up with what he does, knowing very well that the moment that plane leaves, you know, he he could be arrested and, and therefore executed within hours. But he's willing to do it because he believes it to be the best thing for the rest of the world, not just his own 
you know, uh, selfish gratifications of, you know, being able to be with the woman that he loves and, and will probably feels like he would never be able to replace. I'm just thinking through this thought right now, but uh, I was mentioning that the the film reminds me of Thomas Hobbes' uh, State of Nature, War of Everyone Against Everyone. And what, what Hobbes thought that people do in that situation is form social contracts. I won't kill you if you won't kill me, and I won't steal your food if you don't steal my food. And that's kind of what's going on in Casablanca to some extent. Rick is making deals behind the scenes and forming partnerships and, you know, who's, who's allied with whom and... You know, it's like these, it's like a proto uh, social contract in the middle of all this chaos. Fascinating. Which at the same time, those contracts, you know, as you watch throughout the movie can easily be broken, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, and easily be turned against, which I think is, is actually something that's really important about, uh, the film. Um, and I think it shows the, I think honestly, this film kind of shows the limitations of that type of philosophy um, because I think it is naturally overcome by people just living out what they want and being willing to do whatever it takes to get it. Right. Yeah. And um, I think that's why that's why Hobbes thought uh, that, you know, the in order to you have to have a strong authority to enforce a social contract. You know, he was a monarchist. Right. So it's what the Nazis do. The Nazis are the ones to enforce the social contracts in Casablanca. Yeah. I mean, and well, and, and you know, um, I think this is what's interesting here. What's interesting here, and I'm glad that you brought up our our discussion about Braveheart, because I also think one of the other dilemmas in the film comes down to the question of you know, freedom and Renault is pretending as if he's actually free when he's really chained by the, the, uh, whims of, of the Germans. And I almost get the sense that at the end of the film as well, he's been inspired to truly be free, to let go of this pretend freedom that he has and actually live true freedom which is exactly what we talked about in Braveheart um and it seems as though too Rick is willing to lay down his life for that uh, ideal as well which is an interesting place to leave these two characters you know as they walk off into the the fog and it seems as though you know their lives are uh, irreparably changed by the choices that Rick made here but for the better Right. To me, it seems like Braveheart is is freedom writ large. I mean, you get the freedom screen at scream at the end of the movie, whereas here it's more like, you know, Rick is subversive in his freedom and he he still controls the roulette wheel, <laughs> even uh, even if he doesn't have his freedom uh, scream at the end of the movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's definitely the case um, that there is. I, it's I mean, a you different little bits of freedom, right? Yes. Instead of yeah, freedom. Writ exactly. Large. Yeah. hundred percent agree with you. Um, it is a different type of, 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 um, it's not as incredibly explicit. Um, but I yeah, think it's, it it's the kind of freedom, it's the kind of freedom, uh, I don't know, a, a, a Jewish person in a, in a German concentra- concentration camp might have, right? You know, they, mm-hmm. you might, they might beat you and kill you, but at least you can keep your dignity to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, obviously this film is, is full of people, uh, who are, big actors at the time and uh and so i wanted to ask you what you thought of especially 
uh, we had talked a little bit about uh, Rick Blaine and Humphrey Bogart, but what did you think of of his performance? And of course, you know, uh, as we've been talking, you know, the the turn then that he makes in the film. You know, I, I'm not sure what I have to say about his turn in the film, but I, I really enjoyed Humphrey Bogart's acting. I, I don't know much about his acting. I don't think I've seen much else of his acting, actually. But uh, for me personally, I always kind of wanted to own a coffee shop or maybe a bar by extension. And I, I like, you know, random uh, casts of people coming and going. In fact, I just spent two weeks in Ashland, Oregon, hanging out in a little pub called Oberon's. And it was very much like Rick's, just, you know, all crazy cast of characters coming and going every night. And I love the cosmopolitanness of it. So I thought his... Uh, he did an interesting job of portraying the duality of, uh, you know, liking the the social scene he created, but also feeling jaded and disinterested and somehow separate from it. And I think he did a good job of portraying that that duality and uh, something I can relate to. Eh? You know, as someone who might uh, like to own a bar or a coffee shop one day. Yeah, you know, I I think I've seen Bogart in many things. You know, a Maltese Falcon, The African Queen. And, and plenty of other films, uh, Sabrina. Um, he's, I haven't I seen any of those, to be honest. Oh, yeah. There you go. You got a new list. <laughs> but new direction for the 602 Club, yeah. He's, I think he's phenomenal here because um, especially when we talk about the flashback sequence and the way in mm-hmm. which he is able to portray a character who is completely different than the Rick we've already been seeing uh, is great. And And what's interesting then is to watch him slowly tap back into those things throughout the rest of the film so that by the time we get to the end we already have seen a version of rick that he's moving back towards Mm -hmm. uh and and basically it's the you know that part of himself and that part of his heart is being unlocked again uh and you know even says it to elsa you know we didn't have we had lost paris until you came and we got it back and that getting it back is actually something that allows him to uh, let go of her, let go mm-hmm. of what he wants and do what's better for the greater good. And I think his portrayal in that is is phenomenal. I mean, his scene, of course, too, at the bar where he's just, you know, of all the gin joints and all the towns and all the world, <laughs> she had to walk into mine. It's his acting there, I think, is is great. I guess I, I'm of two minds about the 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 flashback sequence, the the montage. Um, I mean, on the one hand, I feel like it it gives us this insight into his character. Like it's almost like the the baseline for his character that he needs to return to because he's become jaded. On the other hand, it seems to make him almost uh, uh, overly sentimental, over, overly romantic to the point that it might undercut the political force of his character at the end of the movie. You know, is he is he acting out of romance or is he acting out of the common good? You know, which, which is it? I, I think that's why they talk about in the film, uh, you know, that he had been a part of other, uh, you know, underdog stories uh, and underdog. Um, you know, he, he had run guns uh, during uh, into Ethiopia. You know, um, fought in the Republican side of the Spanish Civil War. Uh, and, you know, he talks about he gets paid well for that. Right. But I, I think that's him covering up for the fact that he's always been somebody who seems to have a good indication of what is right and wrong and, and you know, what's good and evil and, and what side of to be on. Right. Uh, so I think that by putting that with the flashback it allows us to have a full picture of who this character used to be and what he's lost and then watch him slowly regain that. And, and to me, 
Um, I, I find him to be in, in it to be a moving performance. Um, I think he really sinks his teeth into it and, and gives it his all uh, in a way that to me, you know, even today, I think still holds up, which leads me to our leading lady in Ingrid Bergman. Uh, and I, I really wondered what you thought of Ilsa because, you know, as well, I think in this film, she has to play many different variations of this character, and there's a lot of ups and downs, I feel like, with her performance. Well, she has to play a different character with uh, with Laszlo than she does with Rick, right? Uh, mm-hmm. She's she's playing yep. both sides of the fence to some extent as well. Well, and I was thinking too, you know, and the, to me the scene, and this is one of the reasons I think I love the flashback the most, It's it's not as much about Rick, I think, to me. When I watch her performance and you get that moment where, uh, you know, they are drinking the champagne together and they're in the, you know, they're in the bar and Sam's playing the piano and uh, their her countenance is completely different. She has completely changed from the character you've seen in, in the flashback before to who she is now when she's real, when she's heard and learned, you know, that Laszlo is alive, not dead. And do you think her character gets the same kind of development that Rick's character gets by the end of the film? Uh... I think that, especially for the time, I think they do a pretty phenomenal job of the uh, characterization for her. Um, I think that she's a pretty complex character. And I think what's fascinating in the end as well I think she also has to make the choice, right? Is she going to do what is better for everyone or just for her? Mm -hmm. And she makes the choice to go with Laszlo, right? Well, this is the when Harry met Sally conversation, right? Exactly. (laughs) And I think, I think that, you know, I think it is not about her just following, not just about following duty, but I think like, like uh rick it does come down to her being willing to do uh the right thing for everyone not just her you know she had told rick i can't think anymore you have to do the thinking for all of us and in the end i think she's also doing the thinking not just for herself not just for rick but i think she's doing the she understands the importance of who her husband is right and what he can inspire others to do and therefore, she's willing to give up a desire that she has for the greater good. And I, I think that's uh, she does a really good job of that. And I, I mean, think despite, really... despite the the self interest that permeates the film, exactly, exactly. Um, which I think that's the thing about this movie that I love. Of course, I already you know mentioned this movie is all about the idea of letting go of selfishness and becoming more selfless, right? And uh, I I think um, there's something really special about that. And I think those two performances specifically play that out. Now, uh, Paul Henrid, who's playing Victor Laszlo, um, I think the thing that I'm most impressed by him is that he doesn't play an idiot. Like, he knows what's going on. Uh, and I'm actually struck by it at the end of the film, and I'm I'm wondering if you agree with his performance that I think he absolutely knows what's been happening. 
You know, I have to say, I, I was particularly impressed with, with, with the Laszlo character and the acting by extension. I mean, there's there's an element of it's in the script, right? So he gets one of the good lines, which is, I, for, I forget the exact line, but it's something to the effect of, you know, what can I, what am I going to do? Am I going to sit here and, you know, rot in Casablanca? Or am I going to go put myself out there in danger and do what I can? <laughs> and that's what I'm going to do. I forget exactly how he phrases it, but, uh, you know, he, he, he's, he refuses just to be a... Uh, 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 a passive obser- observer of history is going to take his part in it, even if it, if, if he has to put himself at risk to do it. And uh, I'm not sure if it's the acting that portrays that or the lines, but you know, you know, actually speaking of him, you know, uh, I had a, uh, uh, this is just a bit of a stretch, but his acting reminded me a lot of Kelsey Grammer uh, to the point oh, where I was, okay. I was thinking to myself that Kelsey Grammer is to some extent channeling this performance mm. in his portrayal of Frazier. Oh man, that's a really interesting poll. And I like that. But I can see it, actually, in the way that uh, Kelsey Grammer kind of, yeah, I, that's really interesting. I like that a lot. But no, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad you liked it. And I think, you know, it, you mentioned just the, the writing with the character, right? And I think that that's one of the reasons, of course, that this movie has continued to be uh, a standout to people. Uh, it's just that the writing for these characters is incredible. I mean... Um, I was, I was laughing out loud at some of the lines in the, in the film. And one of my absolute favorites is, is not one that's like one of the most famous, uh, but it comes from Ferrari when he's like, as the leader of all illegal activities in Casablanca, I'm an influential and respected man. And it's like, <laughs> that's a hysterical line. Um, it, it's, it, but that's just the, the type of writing that we get with these characters. And, and I think, you know, Claude Rains is uh, Captain Renault. I, I think, uh, especially Sidney Greenstreet as a senior Ferrari, Peter Laurie, even as, as Ugate. Um, you know, the um, Strasse. I, all of these, I, you know, char- I, I like these characters. I know people yes. like this. I know people that they they want to they want to be respected out in public, but they want their hand in all the dirty dealings. Yes, <laughs> and they're yes. some of the most interesting people you meet, right? Exactly. No, I, I. So you know, I think that's the other thing about this film is that, and and we mentioned, you know, we don't talk a lot of Star Trek on the show, but this movie reminds me so much of the way in which there are a lot of characters in this film that become memorable. But they have very small parts. And you think of them as having bigger parts in the film, even though they don't. It's the same way Deep Space Nine is with a lot of its side characters. We come out of that show thinking that Garrick is a much bigger character in this in the series, but he's only in like 20 episodes. Right. Right. And I think that that's where, you know, the 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 way in which these characters are portrayed because of the actual actors involved and they give them these personalities that they just, they bring such gravitas to it that you can't forget them. But it's on top of the lines then that they get to say, which create such classic characters. Well, it's no accident that you thought of quirks and I thought of quirks, but yeah. And this is something you probably know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to, but it is, is quirks actually based on Rick's uh, to some extent? Uh, is that a conscious choice? Man, I think I'd have to go back and and read the, and I have it, of course, uh, you know, the companion uh, that uh, Terry Erdman wrote. And I would guess that somewhere along the way, and you probably even find it faster in uh, Memory Alpha if you just look up Quarks. uh, And I I can't imagine it was not a part of the thought process, right? Because, you know, the the writers of Star Trek always knew um, 
so much history of film and they were pulling from so many things. So no, I, I it had to be. So um, I wanted to ask you too, you know, this is the first time you've seen this movie, but what did you, what did you think of just the look of the film, the, 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 the noir nature of it, the way it shot, the the play with shadow and light, and of course, you know, it, which is so important in a black and white film. You know, it, what it reminded me of, actually, because of the high contrast levels in the film, it's not just a black and white film, it's a black and white film, high levels of contrast in the film, it reminds me of like an Ansel Adams uh, a photograph, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, everyone was taking photos of nature, but Ansel Adams heightened the contrast and had a unique look, and that's why he was so, so well known, and uh, I think the, the, the heightened contrast plays to the, to the moral issues in the film. It plays to the dark versus light. It plays to the, I mean, and, and, you know, and it's, it's not like it's all shot that way. There are, there are, there are scenes where, where the, the contrast is reduced and maybe those are the moral gray area <laughs> scenes. I haven't thought about that in detail, but it'd be interesting to go back and, and, and pay attention to which film, which scenes in the film had the highest levels of contrast and which didn't and whether that matches up with the, the gray areas, uh, the moral gray yes. areas that you were describing. I think that's a great pull, actually, Zach, from your first time watching this film, because as I'm thinking through the film, which I've seen many a times, right? Um, I think absolutely that there are places and, and specifically where the contrast is lowered. And it's mainly in the scenes with Rick and Ilsa. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so that there is that moral ambiguity being played out. Uh, and then there are other scenes where you see, like you said, the heightened contrast between shadow and light. And so I 100% think that you're onto something with that. And yeah, it's not merely an aesthetic quality. It's, it's, it's exactly. a moral quality to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I think that you're right on target with that. And so, and I loved your pull of Ansel Adams. I've always loved his photography. I think, you know, who doesn't, right? Um, it's it's gorgeous photography. And, and, and it was by pulling out that contrast that he was able to bring to life in black and white uh, the beauty of nature, even without seeing it in color. And and the, and, and the, the drama of even a still picture. Exactly. A hundred percent. And that I, I think that's one of the things as well when I'm thinking of the look of this film, it, it it feels like one of those movies that you could almost pull out any still from and it be like that. And so I think that that, you know, I, which is another thing to which I, I think is why this movie feels classic in that sense. You know, when you feel like you could almost take out any scene and almost any still from the film and just like, you know, put it up on your wall and it would be art. Even though, like we said at the beginning, they're not trying to make art here. They're just trying to make it on the movie. Uh, and it turns into that. I, I think it's a, it's one of those uh, – might be one of the most uh, felicitous things to happen in Hollywood, right, is well, when I, that I, accidentally I, I, happens. I sit and I think about, you know, what are, what are the things in human life that really reveal human nature to, <laughs> in, in all of its rawness? And one is war and the other is probably being in a bar. <laughs> and here we get both. And, uh, you know, we get the, the heightened contrast that really reveals the rawness. Exactly. Yeah. No, I love it. I'm so glad you pulled that out, though. I, I you know, and honestly, I feel like an idiot that I'd never thought about that before. Well, never having seen it, that's something that stood out to me immediately. It's just that it, I, I was noticing this is not just a black and white film. This is a very black and white film. Yeah. Well, and I think that this is one of those things where uh, for me, so so many times, you know, I, I and I, I'm very 
uh, guilty of this, where I I'm so uh, you know specifically focused on you know story and character and thematic elements and stuff. I do, in all honesty, just sometimes miss some of those type of subtleties. And you know, I was able to pick up on some things rewatching the film again myself here, uh, which I was glad of. Um, but you know, it, 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 I love it because it, I think it just goes to show like how different people watch film in the, in, in the first place. And that's what makes, you know, like podcasting about film so fun in, in the first place, you know, I think I had um, to take a totally different, the opposite approach as you, I think I, I have no ability to remember the minutia of the plot or the characters, <laughs> but I do, I do, I did kind of absorb the overall gestalt of the film. Yeah, exactly. No, and I, I'm makes for I think an exciting conversation. Um, I I wanted to ask you just before we wrap up here because uh, you know the score here is done by Max Steiner, who classic film composer from that time period. Did King Kong? Did Gone with the Wind? Um, we talked about the idea of him, you know, using the French national anthem as is kind of a motif throughout the entire work. Uh, I found it most interesting learning that he uh, did not actually want to use as time goes by. He wanted to do his own composition and they couldn't because uh, Bergman had already cut her hair short for her next role <laughs> and then couldn't reshoot the scenes. Um, so what did you end up thinking of, you know, the score here? And of course, you know, all of the ways in which they had weaved in that popular music of the time to to really create a, an incredible soundtrack. Boy, I'm not, I'm not sure what to say about it, to be honest. I think, uh, I mean, maybe I mentioned this before. I forget, I forget which film we were talking about. But to some extent, I think the measure of a good score is the extent to which it fades into the background. Like it it, it, it adds to the the feel of the movie, but doesn't uh, doesn't trample on anything. And I think the score did a good job at that for me. Definitely picked up on the French theme. I thought that worked very well. I mean, you know, who doesn't want to? shout Viva la France when, when the Germans are taking over. Right. So I think that, that was really effective. Um, uh, in terms of the incorporation of popular music, I mean, I don't know, this is the era of big band music. And, uh, it's, it, to me, it just struck me as kind of par for the course that a film from this era would have, would have some 1940s popular music in it. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure what else to say about it though. Uh, I wanted to play it again, Sam. I like the music. <laughs> you know, I, I think, uh, for me, I, I love the score here. I wish that, you know, they didn't they don't actually have a recording of the score without a lot of the dialogue in it um, because, mm. you know, they didn't make soundtracks uh, to films the way we do these days. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that. This is a really good soundtrack specifically because of the use of, you know, that French national anthem, which is so iconic. And of course, you know, um reminds us almost of like the 1812 overture by uh, Tarkowski mm -hmm. um, kind of feel, which is beautiful. But I, I think, you know, this is a film which is so known for the idea that the song as time goes by actually brings. And I think it's, it's again, a, a really beautiful, and wonderful accident that allows them to not be able to replace that song as the love song here because so much this movie is about time going by and 
what it does to us, uh, how love can change, how our situations can change, and all of those type of things. And so I think the song alone it's just... back to the waiting, waiting, waiting at the beginning, exactly. at the beginning of the movie. Exactly. 100%. I mean, time goes by in the film. I mean, we see a, a montage from the past and things happen, but it also goes by really slowly in Casablanca. Exactly. So no, I, I'm really glad that they weren't able to change it. I think it works so much uh, better in the film. So I, well, you know, I sure people can guess what I might rate this film, but I'm fascinated to see with the conversation that we have had, where you're going to land with your first viewing of Casablanca. You know, it's it's never going to be my favorite movie, maybe just because it's it's old. I hate to say that, but um, I um, I have no complaints about the movie. I thought it was really enjoyable. If anything, it made me hungry to watch it again, because uh, I know I missed plot points, and I know I missed character details, because I did literally only watch it the one time. So it, I think because of this hunger to watch it again, there, there are thematic elements that really speak to me, like the nihilism inherent to a, a wartime period and whatnot, uh, not to mention the, the incredible acting that we talked about and the, and the incredibly memorable lines. Uh, I'm going to give this, uh, let's call it four out of five bottles of, is it, is it Vichy water? Is there a bottle of Vichy yeah. water in the, in the movies? <laughs> I love that. I think that's phenomenal. Um, you know, I think one of my favorite things to hear is that you want to revisit the film, which I think is a hallmark of a good movie. For the most part, right? It, you know, if you didn't like the movie, you wouldn't want to revisit it, and so I'm I'm glad that's the case. Uh, you know, look, I this is my favorite movie of all time. Uh, this is also what I think is the best film of all time. Uh, I think it's it's just so wonderfully classic in all of the right ways, and I love rewatching it. Um, I'm actually going to be showing it to some of our young adults in our church group that have never seen it uh, because I talk about it all the time and they've been asking. So I was like, okay, well, we'll finally do a movie night then. Uh, and so I'm going to be very interested in their reactions. But uh, on top of that, you know, one of the things that I'm glad about with the way my parents brought me up was that we didn't watch a lot of newer stuff when I was young, but we did watch all of these old classic black and white films. And I do understand for many people that it's difficult to get into them sometimes because these films are so much about dialogue and following the dialogue uh, for the character development. And it's not about lots of big action, right? Um, like you said, they're, they're much more like stage plays. And I'm just eternally grateful, you know, it, to my parents for, for that because I... I love that I have this appreciation for these older movies. And I think it's a, it's allowed me to um, really be able to experience some great classic films. So, you know, that's just a shout out to my parents there because, uh, you know, it's something that I've really appreciated over the years as I've uh, continued to dig into, you know, black and white films and, you know, films from, from the forties and the fifties and the sixties. And, and so, uh, yeah, I love it. This is just a little point, but um, you were saying that this is, to some extent, the the best film ever. And it actually did strike me as one of the most cinematic films ever. I mean, almost by definition, but but cinematic in the sense of, um, like, one of the things that jumps out to me is the, tr the transition between scenes are incredibly mm -hmm. slow fades. It's, it's, yes. it's dramatic in its composition. Mm -hmm. I, no, I think that's a great point. Uh, I 100% agree with you. Uh, in that and like the very definition of a cinematic yes. slow fade that is this movie <laughs> yes uh, 
No, I, I think you kind of nailed it on in that point. So no, that that's a, I'm glad you said that. So, uh, cause I, I really agree with you in that. And so it, yeah, Zach, if, if people want to catch up with you, maybe they've got some recommendations for other old films that they think you should check out. Where would they be able to find you? Yeah, there's there's two good places to find me. One is on Twitter. My handle is just my name, at Zachary Fruling. You can always contact me there. And uh, you can always also find me on my website, ZacharyFruling.com, where I tend to write about philosophy, but I also write about philosophy and film to some degree. And you can find me all over social media under the name MattRushing02. Uh, there seems to be a new one every week, but I'm most active on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Vero under the name MattRushing02. Uh, you can also find me, of course, uh, here all over the network outside the 602 Club with Warp 5, The Orb, Literary Treks, Saddle Up, and The Artificial Tango. And you'll also find me over on the Nerd Party Network with a couple of shows. Uh, one is Owl Post that I did with Dre Kaufman, and we talked through all of the chapters of the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time. And I do an aggressive negotiations with the great John Mills as we talk about Star Wars each and every week. But... Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll always have Paris. ¶¶